guys, welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Hello, welcome back. It has been a minute. This is the first podcast of the new year. This is the first podcast of season six. Thank you all for bearing with me as I took a few months off. We've got a great lineup of guests for this season. There will be 11 episodes and we are kicking things off right now. So thank you for tuning in. I had a wonderful couple of weeks of reconnecting with friends and family, going out to California, visiting some of our favorite people in Napa and Sonoma. Thank you, as always, for making that trip so special. And we are setting intentions for the new year. I've already got some great events lined up, updated the website. If you are new here, go ahead and check out www.acorkintheroad.com. You can also find a lot of our updates on Instagram and Twitter at A Cork in the Road. And I'm Kelly and I'm based in Atlanta and I'm so excited to host this show. I had a lot of people asking me when it was going to come back on and all that means to me is the world because that means that you're looking forward to hearing more content from this show and that you enjoy listening to it, whether you're driving, going for runs, traveling, whatever it is, it's great to know that there are people listening and learning about all the people that we have as guests on the podcast. So good to be back. So we're kicking things off today, episode one, not in Atlanta, but just our neighbor out on the coast. We're heading over to Charleston, South Carolina. My husband's family live in Charleston and we go there a lot. It's a pretty easy drive from Atlanta. We're usually out there around holiday time or whenever we just need a good ocean getaway. And we were out there in 2021 and heard about this new place called the Tippling House. And of course we went because it was wine bar. It had some great first reviews. It had just opened. We're like, let's go check this out. Turns out the man behind the scenes, Matthew Conway, has a really impressive resume of wine experience that brought him eventually to South Carolina, where he's now owning and operating and serving great wines at the Tippling House. He's from Northern California. He spent 17 years in New York City and even spent some time in France. But he talks about how all of the skills of really high-end wine service have translated to this cozy Charleston setting. So you can do that in jeans and you can do that in a suit, but he has really been able to bring his love for telling stories about producers. It's like a living room with a fireplace in downtown Charleston. So we also end the episode talking about his favorite region, which is the Northern Rhone. And he talks about the wines being soulful. Prior to even being there, he was drawn toward the wines just by tasting them and then since then he's got a lot of great friends and a lot of great connections and he's bringing that to life here in the states so thank you matthew for being on the show if you are ever in the charleston area please add the tippling house to your rotation of wine bar adventures thank you for tuning in and we look forward to talking to you next week being here it's good to see you thank you for having me thank you for having me it sounds like you've had a very busy week you just moved is this correct congrats thank you yeah i'm sitting in my new apartment right now we just moved uh to the first non-studio we've ever lived in 
still in downtown Charleston. Yep, right down the street from where we were before. It's a pretty little neighborhood, and it's got a backyard and an extra room and just a nice little place. Well, you look cozy already, so welcome home to you. This is actually my first podcast recording in a while, but I thought it was appropriate because you were one of the very last people I saw in 2021. Charleston was a great place to celebrate New Year's Eve, and you were one of the last people in that year. So it's good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Honored. It was great, though. And I was like, well, we're just going to kick this off because you have opened the tippling house and you are rocking it so have you done a podcast before yeah i mean most recently i did the great nation with sam ben ruby out of new york on heritage radio okay so you're you're a podcast pro so you're actually probably more up to date on podcasting than me i've took a few months off so here we are but it's really fun to have you and because you opened the tippling house in october 2021 you're kind of a recent resident of charleston is it starting to feel like home yet, especially now in the new place? Very, very much so. It didn't take long for me to feel comfortable here, but feeling comfortable and feeling like home, I think, are two totally different things. I, years ago, I'm originally from Northern California, and when I had moved to New York, I told my mom one time, returning back to New York after a trip and taking a car from JFK back into Manhattan and driving over the bridge, and I realized, like, I took a sigh of relief, like, ah finally home. That was when I realized I was a New Yorker, by my definition, maybe not New Yorkers' definitions. It it took a little longer for me to to get that street cred. But here, we like it was super easy to feel comfortable. We'd visited here a bunch. My family's been down here for a while. But for it to actually feel like home um, took took a while. Not as long as New York, but it, it did take a little while. Sometimes I do still feel out of place in the South. I've, rele- I've leaned on some of my Southern friends to take a deep breath and try to slow things down a little bit and let life kind of roll a little bit more. Um, definitely with the new home, it feels like home, but, you know, opening the wine bar and really being able to interact with the community, but more so just being able to relate to whoever comes in, um, whether they're from the South or not, as a local kind of really makes you feel like home when they're relying on you for suggestions on where to eat or other bars to go to or things to do, um, which happens every night. I think it certainly makes you feel uh, like you're home because you're giving people advice about what's going on around town. I think being in a wine bar allows you to have those conversations. You're not just there doing your own thing. You are constantly connecting with people who are there to enjoy and explore the city. So that's got to help a little bit with just that connection and community feel. But was this always the goal to have your own wine bar? We're going to talk about kind of the background story of how you got here, but I always ask, is this the ultimate goal? Is this like the you made it moment? Definitely not my goal when we moved down here. I've always wanted to open place where I could express my idea of what wine service and, you know, a a wine experience would look like. So it's definitely been something I've always wanted to do. And I was kind of inching towards that in New York right before COVID. So to have that put on pause, and then once we realized we were going to stay, my wife has a phenomenal job, uh, running the events for the Leon's group. And so she's really happy and comfortable in her world over there. And, you know, I did a bunch of things to kind of test what I wanted to do 
And the tippling house just happened so naturally, better or worse, it was meant to be <laughs> once I dabbled my toe and we found the space, which again, I wasn't even necessarily, I didn't even have the name or the concept or anything in mind. Once we found the space and the owners flipped me the keys, it was kind of like every time I like checked where we were, I was like too far to stop in a good way. Like everything was just rolling in the way that a lot of people have to work really hard to scrap something together. It just kind of happened really effortlessly and naturally. And so every step of the way, I was kind of like, you know, this is, this is meant to be. I love that that's the way that that happened. I feel like if you tried, that may not have happened in that way. So I'm actually very happy to hear that sometimes things just kind of fell into place. But the space is special. So tell me about this house because you found it. I know you did a lot of work to create the space that it is, but it is not your average wine bar that people might be envisioning when we're talking about this. So how do you describe it to people, the Tipling House, what should people be excited about when they come visit? To leave the wine part of it aside, just the building itself, it's a Charleston single, which is a classic style of home down here. And it's a lot of history in Charleston, which is why a lot of people love to visit here. And part of the history here is architecture and churches and a place where people want to come to, to enjoy the warm weather and enjoy the architecture. And this particular Charleston single was built in 1891. Um, there are residents above us and residents behind us, and this was a residence for most of the time. It was converted to commercial about 10 years ago, and when we took it over, it was kind of a dark, unimpressive living room with a bar and a bathroom. I was a little more enamored with the location being arms reach to Shenu and right down the block from Chubby Fish and between Malagon, Estadio and Salbao Biscuit. Like there's just a lot of great food in the neighborhood, but there's the only bars are kind of like hard alcohol. Cuddy's is more of a dive bar. Warehouse is a little bit more of a clubbish feel. So there wasn't really a place where you could, you know, people who are going to Bistronomy or, or wherever could, could have a glass of wine and do something that was adult beverage minded, but not necessarily like down and down and dirty so the location's what grabbed me first and then the second thing that hooked me was the uh owners the fields family they're out on john's island they bought a bunch of property with the money that their dad uh he's frederick senior's 80 now 81 and his father set a bunch of money aside for him when he was in the navy um and when he passed away they gave frederick the the money and it was eight thousand dollars and that lot corner lot was $8,000 in 1971. So he bought it and they were really excited about having us as tenants, gave us the keys before we'd signed a lease, again, leading into the whole it was meant to be thing. So I was really excited about the location and I was really excited to be working or, you know, renting from people that I thought were really awesome, had a lot of soul, salt of the earth, you know, Charleston family in the Fields family. And then once I got in the space, it was pretty ugly. I remember when I showed my mom the first time, she said, oh man, this is going to be a lot of work. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can see what's here, but I had a buddy of mine that I met down here, you know, fishing on the shore and he became a good friend and he owns property down here. And he, I had him come over to look at the electrical panel and he looked in the room and said, what the, what are you going to do with this? And I was like, I'm going to serve wine here. He's like, oh man, you need cool points. I was like, what? He's like, cool points. I'm like, what's cool points? He's like, cool points, brother. You need something cool here. Behind that wall is a fireplace. And I was like, I'm not doing that. 
and he told me and Krista to get in his truck and he drove us down and showed us some of the fireplaces that he'd redone in some of his properties down here. And he kind of pushed me at every way. And I ended up peeling off the drywall. It, it had been covered in 1921 after 30 years of working as an operating fireplace. The Charleston single structure is built around the fireplace. So it raises the two floors from flooding potentially. Uh, so it's the foundation of the house. So they couldn't use the fireplace anymore because the grout had poured out because they didn't have fire uh, resistant grout, but they couldn't use the fireplace, but they needed it for the structure. So they just walled it in. So it was a hundred years from the time that they covered it up. And I actually pulled off with my own hammer, uh, horsehair spackle. Like you could see where they smeared with their hands and horsehair into it from a hundred years earlier. And I pulled that off with my hammer. So we did, I did all that work with my fishing buddy, with him guiding me. And I'm not a very handy guy. I'm much more of a wine wuss than I am a handy guy. So it took a lot of effort. It was in the middle of summer. Yeah, I put a lot of sweat into it. But it's a charming little Charleston single with a lot of history, starting with the brick fireplace from 1891 that we restored to the best of our ability with our sweat and tears Some sometimes. Um, and that's the center focal point of the living room. So it's really a place where you can feel at home. Uh, you can relax. Uh, my wife says it's a place where you can kind of forget that it's 2022 and there's wars going on and the hectic nature of the day and kind of slip into a living room and have a glass of wine with a friend and, and put your phone down and forget where you are. And that's the focal point of the, the building. Extremely accurate way to describe the escape from reality that you feel when you walk into this house. I love that it was that much hands-on work from your perspective and what you were creating to kind of preserve, but also move the space forward. So it is cozy and it's special. And then you get to fill it with spectacular wines. So a couple of things that I love about the list and what you've built there, the ability to open any bottle on the list if you want a half bottle. And you also have the Matthews stash, which is that separate list. So those are two things that I just thought that I thought were super creative upon entering this beautiful space with now these wines that were super intriguing. What do you like most about having your own list? And have you been able to find everything that you want in Charleston? Part of the reason why I stayed here is because there's such a beautiful wine community that existed before me. So, you know, many people way before my time did the hard work to make Charleston for the size of the town. It's the best wine city in the nation. If there's any other city or town that is this size population, they're not getting Rumier and Rouleau and Reyes and that's just the fancy stuff. But even when you trickle down to like the small 10 and $15 bottles of fun natural wines or, you know, just certain things, there's just a, a big uh, thumbprint of the best wines in the world here. Uh, and again, I'm not gonna name them all here, um, but there's a lot of people that did the hard work before me to really care about those wines being here and import them, sell them, retail them, push them so that there's a home for them. So kudos to those people uh, that did the hard work. So that exists here. I can't get everything, but I have access to a lot of wines from my personal seller, which is my stash. But I, what I really wanted to do with the list was I can't make everything by the glass because, you know, we're not big enough to do 
400 covers a night and keep rolling through 40 wines by the glass. It just didn't make sense. So knowing, you know, assuming we we're going to have, you know, 10, 15 wines by the glass at any given time, I wanted to open the whole list. So there's two lists. There's a daily list, which is dated and printed daily. So there's never any 86s unless we run out of something that night, which I think is really important to be fresh and current. And, you know, it, it's more work. It's definitely tedious at times, but making sure that we were printing every day. So we print and date the wine list with the stamp with today's date. I did it earlier today, every day that we're open. And then everything on that daily list is available by the half bottle for half the bottle price. But we have a bottle of Envinate from the Canary Islands. It's very hard to get everywhere else. $60 on the list because we have low markups because we're not a normal restaurant. So we have lower than restaurant markups. Um, and you can then take that bottle and I will open it for you, pour half of the bottle out into a Riedel decanter table side and pour you half the bottle, which is 13 ounces. Our wines by the glass are five ounces. So it's you know a little over two and a half glasses for $30. So it's less than $15 a glass to drink something like Envinate, you know, Liston Negro from the Canary Islands. If you start to look at all the wines that we do, nothing on the daily list is over a hundred bucks. So the most expensive, Half bottle would be 50 bucks, uh, and that's starting to open all types of doors, but most stuff is right in that $60 sweet spot so that you're right about $12 to $14 per glass. It does make it so that you have to agree on what you're going to drink with your neighbor or commit to drinking a half bottle, which is easy for people like me, for people to try things that they weren't necessarily open to trying or knew that they were going to try. Um, it allows us to keep the bottle closed until somebody's committed to opening half. And to be honest, once we open the first half, Oftentimes the people who open the bottle get the second half, but if not, it, it's now open. So it presents us with the opportunity to engage with another table and say, oh, they'll say, oh yeah, I like light-bodied reds. I usually drink Pinot Noir. And I say, well, I have this Nissan Negro from Envinate. It's not Pinot Noir, but it's light and pretty and has a very, you know, similar DNA to Pinot Noir in, in a layman's term. Here, taste it. Tell me what you think. You put one sip of that Envinate in your mouth and you're like, oh my God, I love this. And there's the other half of the craft. So it's very easy for us to sell the second half of the bottle once the, once the first half is open. Um, so it's been really fun to kind of mix it up. And there's actually a really smart, interested, engaged base here. And those people are coming because we're doing something important. And aside from printing the list every day, I think what we're doing that's important is telling the story behind the wines. We're not a fine dining place. We don't have tablecloths. We don't serve stuff on plates. Uh, it's all paper recyclable goods. We have hard silverware and share plates, but you're in this really casual, comfortable setting where you've forgotten about whatever, and now you're getting a story. We're gonna tell you about the three guys that make Envinate. We're gonna tell you about Alain Grayo and his family and why we carry the wines. We're gonna talk to you about, you know, whatever the wine may be. I joke on social media all the time for the Tippling House. Every bottle comes with a free story. Because our job isn't just, we're not just there to make money. If I wanted to make money, I would have gotten into banking or something else. I want to share my passion of responsibly farmed vineyards by small family growers that put their blood, sweat, and tears into what they do. And I want to open that bottle and share that story with you so that you can feel good about what you're drinking, not just drink something to drink. You can go 
you know, to any bar anywhere and get a whiskey sour until you're, you know, fall down drunk. That's fine. You're welcome to drink as much as you want at the Tiffany House, but there's there's going to be something there to let you know that you're supporting somebody, you know, with the boom of Whole Foods and, you know, organic farming and farm to table and all the farmers markets that are around and popular here. Why would you do anything different with the wines that you drink? And I'm here to help you through that process. Jillian and Eric, my sommeliers are the three of us are there every night to, you know, walk guests through what could be a very intimidating list with something as simple as what do you like to drink? Oh, you like Pinot Noir? I've got Envinate. Do you want a taste of it? You like it? Here's the story. I hope you enjoy it. You are there doing that for people and the opportunity to open the bottle like you're doing without it being intimidating by the glass prices. You are encouraging people to just try something maybe they've never even seen before. I noticed that. I was so excited to see what was on your list. And it's very encouraging to be like, oh, I want to sample that. And then I want to sample that. And you absolutely can there with you asking questions along the way, like, what are you in the mood for? What are you into? So it's a really awesome space for wine in the Southeast to be able to offer that. And I know that you haven't always been in Charleston. You mentioned your 17 years in New York, which that's probably a whole different wine scene. But I am curious are any of those wine buyer, on the floor SOM skills transferring to the wine bar service now? What do you notice about what you used to do and what you're doing now? Any comparison? Very much so. I was honored and had the joy to go to France in the summer of 2010 while I was working at Marc Forgione in New York and do a four-month stage at Taillevent in Paris, which is right off the Champs-Élysées and one of the most revered wine cellars in the world. Uh, Port de Jante and Taillevent kind of went back and forth, but uh, the Vrinar family started Taillevent in the 50s and in many circles, maybe not today in America, but in like kind of the old French style of three-star Michelin. Many people credited Monsieur Vinar with the idea of what three-star Michelin service was. So I got to work there for four months in the summer of 2010, and it was a life-changing experience, but one of the most amazing things. I mean, the cellar is one of the deepest cellars in the world. Uh, but the thing I learned there is like, there's not much difference between a Denny's and a Taivons, right? Like once you get behind the scenes, restaurant work is restaurant work. And then when you like up the level a little bit to the sommelier world, I'll just straight up say it. either you know what you're doing or you don't, right? Either you get it or you don't. Wine service can be formal and stuffy or it can be laid back and chill. But at the end of the day, it's either right or wrong. Either you're decanting a bottle all the way through in one solid pour after it's been standing up or you're stopping and starting. Like there's no, there's no gray area. It's either right or wrong. And the way to handle stemware or uh, greet a table or serve wine to the host to taste and then ladies around the table clockwise, finish with the gentleman and finish with the host. I mean, those things can be done in a hoodie and jeans like I do every night, or it can be done in a, a three-piece suit with a test of on around your neck like Aldo Sam at La Bernadette. At the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference what you're wearing or what the music's playing or what's on the table. The service is either right or it's wrong. And if you want to get a you know, large group of sommeliers around a table and, uh, and discuss proper wine service, there's really not much to debate. It's either right or it's wrong. And many people haven't been trained or don't know um, so those, what I learned in, in, in France and then what I did at Marc Forgione for 14 years uh, and then before that at Cafe Grey was just deliver high quality wine service. I just used to do it in a suit 
Um, and now I get to pare that down a little bit. And to be honest, um, when I talked earlier about being able to do what Matthew wants to do, that's a part of it. And a big part of it was, you know, one of my favorite paces to drink in New York before they closed was Pearl and Ash and then Rebel on the Bowery, which were run by one of my best friends, Patrick Capiello, who now does Monte Rio Cellars. And Patrick really showed uh, the world in my, I mean, there were some before him, but he was the one who like, you know, put on a punk rock t-shirt and jeans, skateboarded to work and then poured, you know, Rulo and Rumier to, you know, billionaire wine collectors. Like it was like, whoa, two worlds are colliding here. And so when I saw that, whether it was going to be in New York or anywhere I was going to do it, and I think this is a great market to do that, it's so much easier to relate to people. I've actually had quite a few people be like, oh, you seem like more of a beer guy. I'm like, why is that? They're like, oh, you got you wear a t-shirt, you got a beard, but here you are talking us through vintages of Gonon. So it's like kind of demystifying the idea that someone needs to be in a suit or, or stuffy and doing it in the South and bringing a New York, Paris mindset to wine service. And I'm not saying I'm the first to do it here by any stretch, but I'm committed to doing it right. I'm committed to serving the wine at the proper temperature, whether it's white, red, champagne. Our wines come out uh, at the proper temperature, served in the proper glassware, with the attention to detail that you would get if you were dying in Taiwan, but you're doing it in an old Charleston single on coming in spring in Charleston and mushing those two worlds together um, has been a has been a pleasure. Sounds like a ton of fun and somebody that is able to adapt to both worlds. Those are objective answers when you talk about the right and wrong of service. And that's not something that you just pick up. You've been working on this for many years and it's a very academic approach to wine, the wine industry. And now you're just applying it to the setting that you envision and that you feel comfortable in. But you've been featured in some very top of the top wine events as a sommelier doing wine service that way. And what made you want to study wine like that in the first place, to take it to that next level, to be at the top of quality? What got you saying, I'm going to push this to the nth degree? My mother was a general manager of a restaurant in Northern California, and I always kind of worked in restaurants, but back of the house was hard. I didn't want to be a server my whole life, and then I kind of fell in love with wine, and when that happened, I was still in California, and I, I Googled to be honest. And I found the American Sommelier Association and my sister was living in New York at the time. So I came out to go to the American Sommelier Association and start training there, which is where I got a job at Cafe Grey under the legendary chef Grey Kuntz and was quickly uh, moved up the ladder to the beverage director for the first James Beard inductee into the Who's Who Hall of Fame, uh, Grey Kuntz, who's, who's, passed away recently uh sadly but working for somebody he Kuntz was the chef at Les Benas at the St. Regis and got four stars over and over and over and was just as big of a chef as you could get at one point in time in New York or, or the United States and being his beverage director opened doors for me um only could have happened working for Grey Kuntz, uh, meeting suppliers and distributors and winemakers and so on and so forth. And then just being, you know, as neighbors to John George across the Columbus Circle, because it was in the Time Warner Center where John George is located. And Risto Zasovsky, who's one of my best friends, was running the beverage program at John George. And we'd gone to wine school together and taken blind tasting together. So it's like, 
I kind of jumped into this real kind of high-end thing in my early 20s and was working crazy hours. And I, I wasn't necessarily trying to get more snooty or, or whatever you want to call it you know, meticulous or, you know, fine wine at all. I was just loving what I was doing, but I was looking at people who had come before me that were still in the game. Robert Bohr, who was at Crew, Kim Kopech, who was at Veritas, people that just I looked up to in, in the United States as far as there wasn't a ton of sommeliers back then. And I had, I had to look up to somebody and, you know, people like Robert and Tim, and I could mention more, uh, they gave every care about every detail of wine service in a way that wasn't common in the United States. And I aspired to be as good as them. But what pushed me to Paris was I wanted to work in a place where the world recognized it as a wine service. And again, I wasn't, it wasn't for me or my ego. It was for experience and learning and absorbing and again as when I came back from France and you know the restaurant in New York started doing really well uh, it opened doors for me to take more time away to do events like La Polet and you know work with whatever and those events that I'm closely associated with I don't do it for the wine I do it for the camaraderie and I was honored to be one of the few captains at that event and work a table that I will never forget um, for the rest of my life, the, the quality of wines and flights of drawn Morchet and Rousseau Chambertin. And just, it was just an embarrassment of riches from a wine standpoint. But I worked hard to get there. But why I was there is not for that table. It was for all the people in the room. And to be able to go back and see friends from Chicago and the West Coast and Europe um, and all of us coming together sharing laughs and uh, having what turns out to be a really small community is important to me. And that's what's kind of pushed me more than anything down the line. Initially, I wanted to, you know, mimic the Boers and Kopecks with wine service. But then I kind of just fell into this world of loving the camaraderie of the type of dedication it takes to be at the top of your game. And I've fallen off from that, I'll be honest. You know, I'm not grinding the ax like I used to in a way of trying to be perfect. I'm trying to be perfect for me. Uh, and what I've done during that time is, since 2010, I've really established myself in the Northern Rhone, uh, which is where my big passion is. And that's something uh, that I take very seriously. And I hope that the wine community as a whole relies on me for. You know, when I need to know something about the Loire Valley, if I'm looking for a tidbit or I need information on a producer or a vintage and I can't find the right answer, I reach out to Pascaline. If I'm looking for, you know, Italian advice, I talk to Jeff Porter or Joe Campanal. If I, you know, everybody's kind of has, especially if, you know, champagne, there's quite a few people that are extremely knowledgeable that I would reach out to. In Burgundy, I'd reach out to, you know, Robert Bohr or Raj Parr. And uh, when it comes to the Northern Rhone, I really pride myself on being up to date at every moment as sharp as attack when it comes to the Rhone so that I have something to contribute to this national or international circle of sommeliers as being somebody that everybody knows they don't have to worry about the Rhone because I got it. You do got it. You take one look at that list and you know that you've got this. I was very happy. We share mutual love for that region and for wine travel. But for you, 
why is it so intriguing? If you want to be someone who's known for that expertise of Northern Known specifically, it's probably a big question, but what is something that is super intriguing? When I first visited there, I just fell in love. And I think this is how most people feel about the wine region they associate the most, uh, whether they're an expert or not. But I just loved the geography, the people, the food, the cuisine there. Uh, just wine aside, it's a peaceful, beautiful, the wildflowers in the springtime, the climate, most of the year, and nine months of the year, it's warm and and sunny, and it's just got a great place to be. It feels very, and I'm from Northern California, and I think there's a lot of similarities to the climate. Uh, so maybe it feels like home to me, but I've always loved Syrah, man. I've always loved um, the savory aspect of Syrah. Um, I'm not a sweet wine drinker. I don't eat sweets uh, for desserts. I'm a very savory person. So whole cluster Syrah with all those spices and, you know, pepper and savory characteristics to it really has always appealed to me. I was telling a story in New York when I was back for Table a couple of weeks ago. Uh, speaking of Veritas, when I was just an up and coming sommelier and I like used to get beat down and thought it was too daunting and it was hard and so much to learn. I would go to Veritas and they had magnums of Verse uh, Cornos on the list, which would now be thousands of dollars. Um, I think it was 01 and I think it was $198 for a magnum of, of because I think Kim Kopech poured Verse by the glass at one point because the prices were so low back then, but they only had a handful of them uh, because Verse had retired and Every time I went back, I had to order one with friends, obviously. I didn't drink the whole magnets myself. So I found the Cornas so soulful, so soulful. And I would be like, this is why I'm doing this. Because people like this create this magic from this hillside that appeals. To, I'd never been to the Rhone at that point, but it appealed to my soul. And I said, I'm on the right track. So I'd say, how many are left, the sommelier? And they would say, there's four left. And then when I'd come back, they're like, there's only two left. Somebody came back and got one. And then when I came back, they're like, oh, there's only one left. So somebody else was drinking them on the other end of me. And I found out years later, Raj Vaida, uh, who's now works with the Paul a group uh, as with a partner with Daniel Jonas, but he was a longtime beverage director for restaurant Danielle and then the whole Dynex group. And somebody who taught me an enormous amount of about old wine and how to open old wine at Paul's uh, in my early days of doing those festivals and a dear friend. He was the he was the idiot on the other side that was slurping the verse. Uh, he was the one that you were racing against. Oh my gosh. Bottles and we each had three tack, 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 tack over like a nine month period. So he's a burgundy guy through and through, but he loves the Rhone. And we've had a chance to do uh, verse lunches since, uh, which were very magical. But those wines appealed to me then. And then as I started go to the region, I started to realize how appreciative the vignerons were that I was coming and that I was showing interest. I wasn't going to Burgundy, Champagne, Bordeaux, and then stopping by to see, you know, one producer or, you know, I, I wasn't on that circuit. I was coming to the Rhone and I wanted to see the everyday wines and the prestigious wines. And on this last trip in July, I went with uh, Carissa, my wife, and it was our first trip overseas after the delay from COVID and I was itching to get back there and we went to Mauve and stayed with our friends, uh, the Gonans and their neighbors with Jean-Louis and Aaron Chav in Mauve or at least the winery. And, you know, Jean-Louis was one of the hardest appointments to get 
ever in the wine world when I first started looking into going. And we've become friends over the years. And Raj met us there for a quick tasting and had to catch a train. And it was just me, Jean-Louis, and Carissa in the cellar. And he was tasting us on the Hermitage uh, vineyards one by one, which is like so romantic to me, you know, just being there and having Jean-Louis take the time to just be so articulate about why these different vineyard sites express themselves the way they do over time. And it's just, I've heard, you know, I know what, I almost know what he's going to say aside from the vintage differentiations, whatever, but I still want to hear it every time I go. And it, you know, he said to me, and I don't say this to brag or, or, sound like I'm trying to be into myself, but it's one of the biggest compliments I've ever got. He said, you know, Matthew, over the years, uh, you know, many people come my way and, and most people come after visiting Burgundy or, you know, some of the bigger regions and and they want to come see Hermitage. And, I, you know, they say I'm the best guy in Hermitage, whether that's true or not, that's what they say. And it's true. Um, you've always, you've been coming here for over 10 years and you care, you, you've, you've come to the region and not even asked me for an appointment. You care as much about the little guy in St. Joseph as you do about the big producers of Hermitage and Cote Roti. And in my entire career, my entire life, even when I was a little boy, before I started getting into the wine, I can only think of three or four of you that come here religiously every year and care about the Appalachian and not Hermitage or not, you know, just the, bucket list marquee people and I respect the hell out of you for that and I just we walked out of that cellar and I said Chris I'm gonna go jump in the ocean and swim out to sea I got nothing left to live for <laughs> that 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 to me like he he conveyed to me what I've what I've cared about because I care about the different terroirs and the old guys and the history and the young guys so the past few years we go back and we meet up with Antoine and Maxime Grio, who have taken over for Atlantic Grio, and we and we invite all the young up and comers in the Rhone, kids who've taken over family domains forever, Olivier Clapp, uh, Pierre Rostang, Guillaume Clousseau. And it's kind of been this little bonding situation and reading wine the way I do. I know that like uh, hopefully we all get to live to a, a good old age and I think we'll be laughing about those times when we used to gather and we were all the young and up and coming kids and now we're wheeling each other around in wheelchairs but the camaraderie of that is the same reason why I go there that I do Paulet. I love and watch them grow and what they're doing with their farming and I got to give that seminar at Tablet about you know organic farming in the northern Rhone and how far we've come in the past decade and you know pushing for more whole cluster and more or proper farming practices, not pushing anybody individually, but giving my support in the way that I can and showing people there's something to say about our influence on the acceptance of we're going to buy and love these wines, even if you have a vintage that does, is a little green or more peppery, like don't sweat that stuff. You know, what they're giving us and what we're giving them and that back and forth. And I couldn't do that for the Rhone and Burgundy and Champagne and Piedmont and all the places that I love so I let you know everybody else do that for their own region and I just try to focus all of my real I mean I love wines and I study much and keep up to date with as much as I can about other reasons but when it comes to that on the ground you know boots in the cellars tasting the notes visiting the old guys you know checking in on the young up-and-comers uh that's northern room for me 
Now it makes sense why that Matthew stash list is the way it is. I can, I get it now. I totally get it. But I also understand that you felt the way that you just described. I mean, the energy is palpable when you talk about the region, but you said you felt that years ago, just by tasting the wines without even having been there, you felt a certain energy or electricity that came through the wines and you were excited about the region even then. So then you add on all these people and the camaraderie and the connections you have, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So now the list makes sense. It all makes sense. It was all my personal sellers. So I obviously collect a lot of Rhone and, and Donon specifically. I kept some older vintages, small amounts of Donon for me. But yeah, early on, like at Cafe Grey, I remember doing these dinners for Don Stotts, who's passed away, and, uh, you know, Neil Goldmacher and this big collector group that runs around New York, and they would come because they love Grey's food and bring, you know, we would do these burgundy dinners where they would bring all these crazy old burgundies, and we did Bordeaux dinners with them, you know, crazy wines, like crazy, 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 crazy wines that are bought at auction that there's only handfuls left, they spent $10,000 on, and I remember being like, 78 shops stopping dead in my tracks and like i'd been drinking russo and rumier and kosteri all night long and the wine that just made my toes want to explode was 78 shav hermitage and then you know down the line it was like somebody brought a magnum of 90 clap and i was just like holy holy smokes like does wine get better than this and like you know i was just getting done you know double decanting you know, whatever 1920 Brion and <laughs> thinking it was just okay and the clap was blowing my world so I was it's just in my blood I couldn't help it I love Burgundy I love I love old Bordeaux I love to drink great wine but the stuff that really just like tickles at my heartstrings is that savory just beauty of of the Syrah grape but also you know, when it ages, especially like, you know, clap and once they hit a certain age, they're so Burgundian. They get so like, you know, they lose all that kind of fat and, you know, charcuterie that everybody talks about that smoked meat kind of like falls off a little bit and they just get so beautiful. And obviously they're a little bit more tannic or they're a little bit more structured than most Burgundy, but they can be very very Burgundian when they have a lot of age on them from the great terroirs of, of the Northern Rhone, especially the Cote Roti. I hope that you've inspired a lot of people to one, make the drive from Atlanta to come see you and try your Northern Rhone stash, because seriously, that's great. But also two, to maybe seek it out if they're not familiar with those wines, give it a chance. The way you talk about it, it's kind of contagious. So hopefully we'll convert more Rhone lovers uh, through this podcast because it's amazing. And I'm right there with you. I think that the community aspect of wine comes through everything that you do, Matthew. Like I, I sensed it when I first walked in your place, but just hearing your story, I think the community and the, the way you connect with people through wine is really key. So I have to know what is the community like in Charleston from the wine industry standpoint? Do you have that community? Are you still studying, exploring wines with other professionals in Charleston? Does that exist? 100%. Uh, first and foremost, there were people here who um, Andrew Marshall at Charleston Grill, you know, Femi and Miles at Graft, Justin at Monarch, there are more, if I really think about it, that really embraced having me here. And there was a point in time before the wine bar and they said, we want you to stay. We'll do whatever you can. I remember Miles tried to help me raise money for the Tippling House. Like I would be a direct competitor in theory. And he was out there trying to, 
you know, help me make ends meet to stay. So I was embraced by the, that community here. And it was part of the reason why I stayed and feel so good about here. There's people who um, are, are willing to embrace uh, community in a way that I love down here. And now I've been able to get some of them up to New York for events, but also bring a bunch of my New Yorker friends down here and have people intermixing so that, you know, hopefully we're starting to build a community that's Charleston based that was built for me by those beautiful people uh, and many more I didn't name. And then, you know, more swirling around, bringing some of my friends down. But then I was approached by a young group of people here that wanted to learn from me. And we did four classes back in the fall and we start next Wednesday for 20 weeks of blind tasting with about 12 uh, people who work in the industry here and we hold it at the Tippling House every Wednesday morning. And I can't stress enough about how this business or this career path has grown and expanded so much because people gave back to people like me, whether they were sommeliers or vignerons, but most importantly from the sommelier standpoint, like the amount of support and uh, guidance I got, the list goes on and on. Uh, they invested so much in me to help me be who I was. You know, I'm, I'm turned 40 this year, but for a long time I was in my early 20s, and everybody said, "How do you? How how are you doing this at such a world class level when you're so young?" Those people, they they propped me up <laughs> when I wasn't able to stand on my own and said, "You can do this," and gave me the support, mostly like you know, on the phone. I mentioned Robert Bohr multiple times just because he gave me some hard knock lesson, but he told me because it was important. And he did, was demanding that if I was going to call myself a sommelier, that we were going to do things the right way. So it's not always just hugs and kisses, uh, but I believe in giving back and paying back what you were given. So uh, I didn't charge anything for the first four weeks. And this next run, I'm, I'm just asking for to cover the costs of the raw products that we use, which is, is tasting wine. I'm just donating my time to try to help pay back what was given to me. Uh, I don't know what's going to come of it or what it means, but I know that every hour I'm in front of 10 people who are thirsty to learn about wine and wine service and wine tasting, I feel um, blessed and honored to even be in that position where they think that they have something to learn from me. So to be able to give it, give it back is has been very rewarding down here. And then when we opened up this next thing, we were eight to begin with, and then we capped it at 12, but there was probably another eight people who were mildly interested. Like if I really wanted to, I could probably start a wine school down here. Sounds like you have the audience. I'm, you know, the wine bar takes a lot out of me. It's a young man's game to be working the floor every night. Um, but yeah, so there's on both sides. People gave it to me and I'm giving it back to the best of my ability. And that's something that, you know, my wife and I have discussed at length and take very seriously, and that's using the Tippling House as an opportunity to host tasting events, whether I'm the educator or not, and, you know, donate space and give back and use the platform, not just in a wine context or a sommelier context, but, you know, we receive uh, a donation of wine, very exclusive wine from Camille from New York, who's a small importer that I love and adore uh, more than anything. And, she donated the wine, so I sold the money, the wine for money, and then we donated uh, all of the proceeds to the Low Country Orphan Project down here uh, at North Charleston. It gives them a backpack and uh, toiletries and a toy and school supplies all in one bag, and they sent them all over the state. And to me, those little things, we're going to go back and donate our time this spring for that. So 
using the wine bar, not just for a place for education for wine people, but also a way to give back to people who, who need it. You know, wine is obviously a bougie thing just to be able to sit in the tippling house and forget where you are for an hour while you sip on uh, some wine is a very privileged place to be. And we don't take the privilege for granted. So we like to use whatever we can to give back. Uh, we're trying to be progressive with things that we do, offering feminine hygiene products in the bathroom, complimentary, because we don't think that there's a difference between tampons and toilet paper. We would love for that to become the norm in the country. Um, we don't care who you come from or who you love or what you like to do with your life. It's none of our business. We mind our own business. Uh, we're happy to serve anybody wine from any walk of life, regardless of race, gender, creed, sexual orientation. Again, we do everything we can to try to be as progressive as we can with people in need and using our platform as small as it is to hopefully encourage other people to do similar things. All through the power of wine and access to wine education. Like it's so much bigger. You said small, but it's so much bigger than that when you can do things like that, build your community, provide education, knowledge opportunities, tasting the wines, and then doing things to give back to the community. So yes, checkbox, all of that, love it, and it's all through wine. So if people are wanting to connect with you, Matthew, what's the best way to find you and learn more about Tippling House? Uh, Tippling House is uh, 221 Cumming Street in Charleston. The cross street is Spring. The website is the Tippling House CHS, as in charleston.com which takes you to our webpage and has all of our information there. My email is matthew at the tipplinghousechs.com. Pretty easy. And then I'm on uh, Instagram at conbeezy, C-O-N-B-E-A-Z-I-E. I interact with anybody who interacts with me there, but also uh, tipplinghousechs is our handle on Instagram. There's no the on the Instagram. And it's kind of funny, there's uh, the Tippling House in Aberdeen, Scotland. And we knew that uh, when we started it, but they're a full bar. And they eventually posted something that was like, hey, all you Southerners, <laughs> I think you're confused. I think I tagged them the very first time. And I was like, oops, that's an oops. Uh, you are not in the UK. You are in Charleston. That is a very good clarification. But lots of ways to find you. And I really hope people take you up on connecting. You might start getting messages about the Northern Rhone. So just stay tuned for that. But thank you so much for just spreading the community and love of wine through what you do in the Southeast. It means the world. Thank you for having me. I think that this type of uh, ability to speak to a larger audience and speak about the wine stuff is fun. And I hope a lot of people care about that. Um, and I'm happy to answer any Rhone or non-Rhone questions and hope to see you at the Tippling House. But the ability to talk about community in the wine world and paying back to what you were given uh, charitable contributions. It's not something I talk about tableside in the restaurants. I want people to enjoy themselves and be comfortable. So audiences like this are extremely important to me, be able to talk about things that are important to us that go way beyond um, pouring wine in a glass because we're heavily committed to the community inside of wine, inside of Charleston, um, but also, you know, taking care of, of your neighbor and other people, uh, sticking up for people that need it, having people's backs, loving people. It's important work. And the wine is all the bonus when it comes to that. So thank you so much for doing all that, Matthew. And I can't wait to come and see you next time in Charleston. It's going to be on my normal stop. So we'll drink some good stuff. I just got some more Gonon Blanc in. Hey! <laughs>
<laughs> we did take that last bottle. Sorry about last, that. <laughs> got some new 19s in. I've got two of them. So we can drink some uh, Les Olivier uh, white going on with some shrimp toast or some other food uh, next time you're in. I look forward to it. Looking forward to it. I'll get in the car uh, very soon. Thank you so much, Matthew. Cheers to you. Sweet. Have a great weekend. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. This is Kelly signing off. Until next time, when we share stories of people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry and the wine world beyond. If you want more adventures with us, check us out online and on Instagram at a cork in the road. And you can also visit our website, www.acorkintheroad.com, for all kinds of updates and to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Cheers and take care.